Welcome to the Antioch Podcast. We're a justice-minded Christian church in beautiful Bend, Oregon, seeking and celebrating the reconciliation of all things. May the Word of Christ dwell in you fully and give you peace. The scripture reading today is from the book of Matthew, chapter 16, verses 13 to 18. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, Antioch. Well, if you don't know me, my name is Sean, and I'm one of the pastors on our team here. And if you've been around Antioch for a little while now, you know that over the past few years, we've really embraced the beauty of the church calendar, as well as the lectionary, using the weekly lectionary texts to guide our sermons each Sunday. If you've been with us these past few weeks, you also know that we've kind of taken a break from the lectionary this fall, uh, leading up to Advent for a unique vision series called The Work of the People. In this series, we are looking at many of the elements that go into each of our weekly gatherings on Sunday morning, talking about their significance, how they are connected to the faith that has been handed down to us over the centuries by those who've gone before us. So our sermons in this series look a little bit different because, again, typically they're entirely driven and based off the lectionary texts of the week. So this series, which is a bit more topical, each sermon is still completely influenced by Scripture. Don't worry, we're not crazy. But uh, since it is more topical, rather than going verse by verse or even word by word through a particular text, we are addressing some of these specific topics or components of our services. And part of the reason why we are so excited to do a series like this that on the surface is really not that exciting, like, ooh, let's talk about the different elements to our Sunday worship service. Boring, right? Uh, Even though it's not what we say a most exhilarating topic is we want you to know why we do what we do. If the more that we understand each of these elements, we can take seriously the role that the Spirit of God has in growing each one of us through our liturgy. Because the reality is that our experience together on Sunday morning is vitally important to our practice of formation. And it forces us to ask this question of what kind of person am I becoming? Within each of our six practices you see around the room, there is a specific relationship that is reconciled as we participate in this practice. And with the practice of formation, we are reconciled to ourselves as we're formed in the image of Christ. So all that to say, we take very seriously each of the components that go into our time together. We're not as dumb as we look, okay? I know, I know that's surprising, but 
In case you weren't able to join us these past few weeks, especially during the kickoff to this series, I want to offer kind of a, a definition of terms of what we mean when we say liturgy. As you see from kind of the artwork behind us, liturgy means the work of the people. And it originally was a secular term that, mean, that meant or referred to public service. So it carried the idea of, of doing good for the common benefit of society or for others, that it would impact other people. And that's the same for us here on Sunday mornings. And this word liturgy is often used to describe, you know, a more traditional church service, one that has a call to worship, it has written prayers, maybe sitting and standing, all of the elements we might classify as traditional. And while that may be true, every single church has a liturgy. Even the most modern, seeker, attractional, rock service type church has a liturgy, a way in which they order their service, a way in which they focus their time. So the question is not whether a church has a liturgy. The question is, is their liturgy intentional? Why are they doing it? Are they doing it because, you know, is it just, eh, we're just throwing it together. It's the way we've always done it. Or we're doing it because it's, you know, the cool thing to do. I don't know that liturgy could ever be cool. But uh, is it, you know, the one simple trick to get young people to come to church or to stay in church? Or is it something that the church in town that's doing, they're, they're growing, so we better do that too. What we see is that our liturgies form us whether we know it or not. That the way we worship becomes the way we believe. That there is no formation without repetition because liturgy isn't just something we do. Liturgy does something to us. And so the goal of liturgy is not to make our Sunday mornings great or meaningful, though we certainly hope that those things are true. Liturgy, everything it encompasses, like prayers, listening to the word, coming to the table, it is meant to prepare us for our work in the world. Professor and author James K.A. Smith, he puts it like this. He says, the capital L liturgy of Sunday morning should generate lowercase l liturgies that govern our existence throughout the rest of the week. That is how deeply we believe in formation that happens through our liturgy as we gather here, that the rest of our lives would be different because of what we do together here each week, that society, the common good, the common benefit of others would be different because of how we gather here in this place. So in week one, Pete talked about the importance of gathering as a church, why it's so powerful when we gather together as a body. Last week, we looked at uh, the importance of singing together, how singing changes us, how it shapes us, even if we're not singers like myself. Uh, Pete jumped in on the band to play bass. Nobody is asking me to do that ever. Um, and today, we'll be looking at what it means to begin our gathering when we declare our worship. And I know that uh, many of you have been using, there's a card in the, in the seat in front of you called Sundays at Antioch. Uh, follow along each week. It, it has uh, what, happen, what are the, each of the elements in our service. And you'll notice on there that our service has this kind of four-pronged arc to it. That first we begin by gathering. Then the, the focus of this time is to connect with God and with each other. To be reminded that God is the gracious initiator of our worship, that he is gathering us to him as creator and redeemer. In the listening section, well, we do just that, right? We listen from God's word directly from scripture and from the presentation of the word through the sermon. And then in response to what we hear from God's word, we come to the table. Here we got this new table and we commune with God. And then once we do that, we go from the table and we are sent back into the world 
filled with the Spirit and ready to live out what we have experienced in this place. And the hope is that this movement of liturgy will be like a symphony. It's not one note, it's not one instrument, but a beautiful harmony of interaction with God and each other and each of these elements that is empowered by the Holy Spirit. And you'll notice that this, this narrative arc of our time together, it's really kind of a, a macro reenactment of God's relationship to us and to the rest of creation. Because if our liturgy were only sermons and singing, we might expect that to be what the entirety of the Christian life to look like. But when our liturgies involve reading and hearing and praying and confessing and giving and eating and drinking and declaring, we can better recognize that each of these components are necessary to the Christian life of discipleship and incorporate them into our lives. Now, today is the first of three sermons in a row that will specifically look at some pre-written texts that we kind of re repeat. Really, they're pre-written prayers because that's what our declaration of worship is. In the coming weeks, we'll look at uh, that prayer that we pray when we confess our sin together and the prayers of the people and what praying in faith looks like. And we recognize that the typical evangelical service doesn't usually include this type of stuff. We get it, we're weird. Uh, but as we take seriously the idea that there is no formation without repetition, we find that these written prayers aid us in that journey. And I get it, right? Praying someone else's words can be awkward. Maybe you've been a part of another church where there was a very high value placed on spontaneous prayers. We are in favor of that type of praying. Don't hear me say that. We're gonna be talking about prayer as a whole in the next few weeks. But we don't have to think that prepared words are insincere words. I think that sometimes that is filtering through our heads that, that words written out in advance, either by you or by someone else, that they're not heartfelt. I think that couldn't be further from the truth. When the disciples asked Jesus to teach us how to pray, you know, what did he tell them? He said, when you pray, say this. And then he went on to recite what we just recited together as the Lord's Prayer. He, he didn't say, oh, you know, just start talking. It has to be original words that you come up with right in this moment or it doesn't count. He said, say these words. He gave them a prayer to use. He said words to recite and to repeat for themselves. And whether it's the Lord's Prayer or other prayers uh, throughout history that have been handed down to us, they're packed with Scripture. And Eugene Peterson, he says, just as we learn to speak by being spoken to, so we learn to pray by praying back to God the words he has spoken to us. I digress. I'm going to start talking about prayer too much here, and I'm going to steal your stuff in a couple weeks, Pete. So that is part of why we do these pre-written prayers. So in light of all that, today we're talking about what it means when we begin our time together on Sunday mornings by declaring our worship. Now, if you did grow up in one of these more traditional churches, one with a formal liturgy, you might be more familiar with a call to worship. At Antioch here, we have what's called a declaration of worship. Traditionally, a call to worship uh, would be a, a passage of scripture. It's often a psalm that is used to say, hey, we are starting an intentional time of worship right now. And we want you to focus on this. This is the God that we are worshiping in this moment. This is why we are here. We are called to worship. Now, what we do at Antioch is slightly different in that uh, our way of doing this kind of tone setting is a bit more intentionally participatory. 
Through our first song, which we call the gathering song, we are called into worship by our worship leaders. You often hear them invite you to join us in worship. We emphasize that God is the great initiator in this, but our declaration of worship is our opportunity to respond to that call. I know that there are some of you that are yogis in the room. I know we have some yoga teachers here at Antioch as well, but this is like setting an intention for your practice. It is a commitment to what you are focusing your time on for the next hour or so. And so when we begin with our declaration of worship, it is meant to break us out of the everyday. It is meant to wake us up to the kingdom that is all around us. It brings us back to an awareness of Christ's lordship and presence and says, this is why we are gathered here in this place. And this is what I'm committed to doing while I'm here. Now, I imagine that just about everyone in the room has been to a wedding, whether it was your own or someone else's, but like our worship gatherings, weddings have a liturgy as well. There are certain components that happen in just about every wedding, things like the processional or the exchange of rings, the first kiss, the the pronouncement, right? And one of the elements is known as the declaration of intent. It's where, that's the Fancy way of saying it, right? It's where the officiant asks the couple, for example, do you, Sean, take Julia to be your lawfully wedded wife? To which I answered, I do, right? And at, in our wedding, I, I, I committed to her. I committed to no one else. And I vowed to act and live and love her in a specific set of ways, which we call the vows, right? For richer, for poor, in sickness, and in health, till death do us part. Well, our declaration of worship is similar. It declares our commitment to the triune God. It it recognizes Jesus' lordship. And on top of that, we make our vows for how we will seek to encounter and experience God in this place each and every week. And whether you know it or not, there is an informal declaration of worship that happens in your home on Sunday morning. Maybe it happens in bed or over your first cup of coffee. Maybe it happens when you're sitting on the toilet. I don't know. But when you make the decision to join others for worship here in this place, you are making a statement of who and how you will worship. There are lots of other places that you could be, lots of other things that you could be doing, right? You could just still be in bed. You could be out on the trail. You could be out hitting the links, playing a little golf. If you decide to do that, text me. Uh, You could be out for brunch. You could be at home watching football. Whatever it is, there are all sorts of things you could be doing instead. And maybe, maybe you even have gone through a lot to get here. You've had to wrangle all of your kids into the car. Uh, maybe you and your spouse had a fight while you were driving over here. You're bumping up against nap time and there's going to be a meltdown and you know that it's happening, right? In spite of all that, intentionally or not, you have begun your declaration of worship by showing up here in this place. So I guess the question to ask is why? Why do all that? Why, why make this informal and formal declaration of worship? Well, in our passage of Scripture today, we hear the story of what is known as the Great Confession. We're in the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus is with his disciples. He is in a place called Caesarea Philippi. Uh, I know that some of you who have been to Israel with Antioch, you visited this place. Caesarea Philippi, it was named for Caesar Augustus. So he is the son of Julius Caesar, right? He of, you know, et tu brute fame, we know him. 
In the empire of Rome, Julius Caesar was considered a god. So Caesar Augustus was considered the son of God. You follow me on that one, right? So as they walk up to this place that is named for someone who is known as the son of God by the Romans, Jesus asks his disciples, he says, who do people say the son of man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Jesus is like, okay, that is all well and good, but he doesn't want to know what other people think. He wants to know what they think. So he goes on. He says, but what about you? Who do you say I am? Let me get an answer here from Simon Peter, one of my all-time favorites from the Gospels. And Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Now, I think that we could all say that Jesus is not asking this question because he is unsure of who he is. He's not like double-checking. He hasn't experienced some Jason Bourne-level amnesia, right? Okay, <laughs> He doesn't need them to tell him who he is. He knows exactly who he is. He knows he's the Messiah. He knows he's the Son of God. So why, why is he asking them this in this moment? He, he wants to hear them say it. He wants to hear him say, he, he likes when his children declare who he is. He does not need them to tell him. He's not wondering, he's not unsure of the answer, but he knows what it does in a person when they confess that he's the Messiah. He knows what it does in a person when they confess that he is the son of God, the savior of the world. Something changes in you when you make that confession. And so Jesus' response was, this, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. So there is some theological disagreement uh, between Catholics and Protestants on what Jesus means by this rock, but uh, we believe that Jesus is talking about the confession that the artist formerly known as Simon has just made, right? Okay? He, he has made this confession of faith to Jesus, and this is the rock that Jesus is going to build his church on, that type of confession, that statement of faith, this saying in his heart and out loud that Jesus is Lord. For Simon, now Peter, this confession changes everything. And it is for this same reason that we say our declaration of worship each and every week. Because every time that we come to this place, there is a sense that Jesus is asking us, who do you say I am? Not, you know, who do others say they are, who I am, or who do you say that I am? And we respond, with our declaration of worship by declaring our loyalty, our allegiance, and our worship to him. And that commitment and that confession that we make today is the rock that Jesus continues to build his church on even to this day. And so if we look at the text of our declaration of worship, the first chunk goes like this. We have gathered here in the name of Jesus Christ. We have come to worship God, our creator and redeemer. We have come to confess that Jesus is Lord. Hopefully that should feel, sound familiar to you. As we respond to Jesus' question of who do you say I am, we declare who we are worshiping. 
that we have gathered in the name of Jesus. To do something in someone's name means to act under that person's authority and direction and not our own. It means to deny our own desires and follow the leadership and the way in the name of that person in which we gather. And while we gather in the name of Jesus Christ in recognition of his life and death and what he has done to redeem us, we also recognize that God has been a part of this story from the beginning. That together, they're the creator of all, and that in the present and in the future, he is our redeemer also, that didn't show up halfway through the story, but has been working all along on our behalf. And we also come to confess that Jesus is Lord. And while that may not feel that revelatory or scandalous to us now, it was a big deal to confess Jesus is Lord to early believers. Talked about this a bit in the context of our passage in Caesarea Philippi, but saying Jesus is Lord was a direct refutation of the central creed of the Roman Empire that Caesar is Lord. This was an inscription on coins throughout the empire that Caesar is Lord. And so saying Jesus is Lord was entirely, entirely radical, entirely dangerous, but also incredibly powerful. The book of Romans says this, that if you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. And while we may not have a literal Caesar to contend with at the present, there are plenty of things that are vying for our worship. Because if we're honest about what is actually going on in our hearts, when we come into this place, a declaration of worship might look or sounds like this, that we have gathered here in the name of Jesus Christ. We have come to worship our creator and redeemer. And in spite of all this, I confess that my career is Lord. Or, or in spite of all this, I confess that I'm, I am Lord, that I make the decisions around here, that I am in charge, that I am gathering in my name, or I confess that my preferred political party or candidate is Lord, even though I said those other things. This is the heart of it, that I am committing to this that if I'm really honest about who I am and how I make decisions, it might not be as if Jesus is truly Lord, that I offer my worship to other things and people, which is why repeating these words that Jesus is Lord to me is actually just as radical today. Because when we declare our worship of Jesus as Lord, we assert our opposition to anything that would attempt to stand in God's place. So after we have declared our intent to follow Jesus, our, our declaration of worship now moves into an opportunity to make our vows and commitments, just like a wedding, and it's how we're going to respond, how we'll be present in this place. So we say we are not here to be entertained. We are here to encounter the sacred. We are not consumers. We are worshipers. And when we make these commitments, we recognize that the point of coming here, the point of gathering in this place is not entertainment. Over the last 50 years especially, there, has been a lot of, there have been a lot of changes in churches with one of the biggest things happening in our kind of non-denominational world of what are called seeker-sensitive services. 
And I'm not up here saying that those are all bad or all those trends are bad, but it can wander into treacherous waters when the goal of a worship service becomes entertaining those who fill the seats with the bar having to be raised ever higher to amaze or to shock or to keep those folks entertained. Now we, again, we want our time together on Sunday mornings to be engaging. We want you to want to come back. But we don't want you to want to come back because it's merely entertaining. Instead, we believe the real power, the real reason that someone might come back is when we encounter the sacred. That our movements and elements, they're designed to approach and encounter the sacred in unique and different ways. To recognize the presence of the spirit in this place and provide opportunities for your awareness to rise to the presence of God already happening. And nowhere is this distinction more clear than in the idea of committing to be a consumer uh, versus a worshiper, right? Or a worshiper versus a consumer. Because our time together is not a spectator sport. It's not as if you guys are in the stands and, and the stage is the game, right? We are all on the field and we are all in the game. Consumers come to do just that, consume. They don't participate. They're not active. Worshippers are there to be involved. They know that they are in the game and that they are a part of the action. They want to encounter and experience the sacred in God himself. And so if we continue on with our trend here of how the declaration of worship might sound different, some honest ones might go like this. We are here to be entertained. As such, we probably won't encounter the sacred. We are merely consumers. We're just customers here, okay? It's not, it's not our job. Or maybe, you know, we are here to be entertained. And if we aren't, we probably won't come back. So bye. Or how about this one? We, we're not here to be entertained. I get that I'm not here to be entertained. I want to encounter the sacred. But if this service is not good enough, I won't be able to worship. So make sure the sermon is up to my preferences, the band is on point, the songs you sing are the ones I like and at my preferred level of volume. Is that a deal, right? Yeah. Again, I'm, I'm right there with you. This is not like an attack or anything. We all have our preferences, right? We all have chosen, chosen where we worship based on any number of factors that are important to us. There is nothing wrong with that. But if we're unable to be active in our participation or if we end up being just consumers and we allow our preferences to become what is important, we miss out on encountering the sacred. In fact, we might find it hard to finish out the declaration of worship it goes like this, we praise and adore the living God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That it is this posture of humility that says, Jesus is Lord, I am not. That I'm here as a worshiper, not as a consumer. That this is how we encounter the triune God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That as we adore him, as we offer our praises, that is how we experience the sacred. Like Cal talked about last week, that, that we praise God through singing. We even have a specific adoration song built into our time together because this is part of the commitment we are making as to why we are here. So we praise and adore the living God. So hopefully that gives you some context for why we confess the specific words that we confess. 
or why we began our time together declaring that Jesus is Lord, of committing to a posture of humility, of seeking to praise and adore the triune God. That, that's how we set our intention for our time together. It's our mantra. But I think one of the main problems that arises is how do we avoid just saying these words versus praying them or believing them each and every week? I'm not sure if this is still a thing, but you know, back in my day, <laughs> um, when I was growing up, we said the Pledge of Allegiance in school every day. Do they still do that? Is that still a thing? No, not a thing. Maybe was it, was that a thing in Oregon ever? Okay, okay, cool, whatever, right? So I remember doing that all the way through high school. If I think back to that experience, think back to the experience of my friends, and maybe it was the same for some of you that have done that. Uh, those words kind of got to the point of not meaning that much to me as a teenager, right? I was just repeating it because that's what we did at 8.47 a.m. every day, right? We stood up from our desks, you know, like half asleep, right? You know, I pledge allegiance, right? I, I was not against the words. Don't hear me say that. Not against the words. I wasn't taking a figurative stand or anything. I deeply hope that as a country, we truly can be a place with liberty and justice for all. But at the time, it was just kind of rote memorization. It, it was repetition without feeling. That is not what we want our declaration of worship to become, or any of our pre-written prayers. But maybe you have been to a naturalization ceremony, or maybe you saw a video uh, of folks becoming citizens. Some of these videos kind of went viral during COVID times. In these settings, you see people coming from all over the world, many times from maybe a war-ravaged country, and how they say the Pledge of Allegiance is very different to the 13-year-old who's half asleep at school, right? They come with passion. They come with commitment. They have gusto in the words that they say. They want to be active participants in creating a society that is just, that is just and equitable. It is beautiful. It is hope on display. And so our hope is that each one of us can come to this place and declare our worship with the same type of fervor and passion. That we would believe the words that we say with our mouths, but that they would come from our heart. That each recitation would feel like a fresh commitment to God himself. That we would remember our first love and do the things that we did at first. That we wouldn't just say these words here in this place on Sunday morning, but in fact that we would embody them in our lives every other day as well. That yes, what happens here would be for the benefit and the common good of society. So I want to close with one more quote from Eugene Peterson, and he says this. Uh, Every call to worship, or for us, declaration of worship, is a call into the real world. You would think by... Uh, this time in my life, I wouldn't need to be called anymore. But I do. I encounter such constant and widespread lying about reality each day and meet with such skill and systematic distortion of the truth that I'm always in danger of losing my grip on reality. The reality, of course, is that God is sovereign and Christ is Savior. The reality is that prayer is my mother tongue and the Eucharist my basic food. The reality is that baptism and not Myers-Briggs defines who I am, or the Enneagram, or whatever, right? This is who we are. 
This is our true reality. And if that is the case, what might it look like for you to live your life every day if it were true? To live each moment as an opportunity to answer that question from Jesus of who do you say I am? And how might your life be different if you do so? Because I think that just like Peter, it changes everything. So, Antioch family, may we be a people who continue to gather in the name of Jesus Christ and confess that Jesus is Lord. May we not seek to be entertained, but to encounter the sacred. May we, not gather, may we gather as worshipers and not as consumers. And as we offer our praise in this place and with the rest of our lives, may we experience the living God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.